Wow! A lot has happened in the last week alone. It makes you think that predicting the future is a nigh-on impossible task. But I've got to tell you about four people who've actually managed to do it. I'm Chris Woods. This is the Industrial Research Podcast. As I record this, a pandemic is sweeping the globe, the COVID-19 virus. And I hope wherever you are, you're safe and well. But events like this make you think that predicting the future is, well, impossible. And to be fair, there's a large degree of scepticism whenever anybody tells you that they can predict the future. And you're completely right to have that scepticism. I mean, after all, if you could predict the future, what well, we'd have anticipated COVID-19, and you might actually have the winning lottery numbers. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm really talking about is using a, a good concrete method in order to have a good idea of what's coming next. Robert Fitzroy, well, he was a captain in the Royal Navy. And back in the 1800s, he actually took Darwin to the Galapagos. He was the captain of HMS Beagle. When he returned, he ended up getting involved in meteorology and predicting the weather. Well, actually, his main goal was predicting storms. You see, he wanted to save fellow sailors. And he started trying to predict when storms would hit and he used collections of data coming from weather stations dotted across the country. And he would get the, the folks at these weather stations to send him regular updates via the telegraph. And he would use this information to calculate, predict, try and model what the weather would do and work out when a storm would come. But in doing this, Fitzroy faced such scepticism, such ridicule from both the press and the scientific community, that these future predictions he were coming up with were, were rubbished. So Fitzroy, well, he invented a new word. And he invented the word forecast. In fact, Fitzroy's quoted as saying, prophecies and predictions they are not. The term forecast is strictly applicable to such an opinion as it is the result of scientific combination and calculation. Ultimately, Fitzroy went on and founded the UK's Met Office and eventually became a governor of New Zealand. In 1984, William Gibson released a sci-fi book called Neuromancer. And it, I mean, it's a fantastic book. And if you haven't got it, I would recommend you go and pick up a copy. It's a, it's a great yarn. But in the book... Gibson outlines a future in which we all access the net, this thing called the net. And in fairness to Gibson, I think in his version, people jacked into the net, like physically put a cable into their, their bodies via some deck mechanism and, and experienced this new world, this net. And in the net, there were large commercial corporations, giant computer servers, Things that look an awful lot like a firewall that protected them and hackers trying to get into these things. And just as Fitzroy invented his own word, so did Gibson. He wanted to call this new space, this new world that 
that existed on the net. He wanted to try and tell you what it was. And the word he came up with, well, that was cyberspace. The third person I need to talk to you about is a chap called Mark Purat. You may or may not have heard of this guy. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, Mark Perrat was a program director at the Aspen Institute. It's an international non-profit think tank. And while he was there, he wrote a book. We call this his Red Book. And in his Red Book, he outlined this vision for the future. A vision where we would all walk around with a phone in our pocket. But we wouldn't just use this phone for making calls. No, we, we would use it to get messages that would be dropped to us from some computers that were located somewhere. In the book, Mark even goes down to detailing what that phone would look like. And it's surprisingly familiar. It has a, a transparent screen as a screen on one side and a transparent touch screen over the top. And you can interact with the display. And he even goes down to giving measurements for how big it would be. Just as Gibson and Fitzroy invented their own word, Pratt needed a word to, to describe where these computers were. They existed somewhere up in the sky and would drop down messages to your phone. And he called this location the cloud. As these three guys have shown, predicting the future is completely possible. The complete accuracy of that prediction, well, that can be debated. But before we even start thinking about how we, as an industrial researcher, can start predicting the future, we need to think about how far into the future we have to look. Fitzroy and his calculations only looked 24 to 48 hours into the future. For us, we need to look a little bit further ahead. Deciding how far into the future to predict is really difficult, but there's several key drivers, key things we can take, then we can use those to help decide what that time frame should be. And then working backwards, we can determine how far into the future we have to look. Inside any organisation, there is a thing called the technology transfer, and that's where a research group would deliver a vision of the future or a proof of concept, and we deliver that proof of concept to a business unit, and we ask that business unit to create a product out of it. And that latency, that tech transfer latency, as I call it, that's where we have this delay from delivering the business unit the vision of the future or the proof of concept that we've come up with and said, look, we, we have to make this. This is the proof of concept. We've worked out all the questions. We know what we have to do. This is what it looks like. Let's go make it. That, that period of time between coming up with that idea and giving it to a business unit and the business unit producing a product that they can sell, that takes time. And normally it takes about 12 to 24 months to make that happen. And I refer to that as the technology transfer latency. Even if I came up with the world's best idea, it would still take a business unit at least 12 months, probably 24 months, just to make that a reality. They've got all that the compliance and checking to do and making sure that this thing's safe and it works and there's backup procedures or 
support lines and manuals and documentation and packaging and marketing strategies and all the rest of the hard work that has to go into making a product real, tangible, and, and being able to purchase it. And that takes a long time. So if we say that's 24 months, that's 24 months after we've done all of our research. And we've got to spend some time coming up with that idea. Now, how long should you spend? Well, it depends between organizations. But if we look at collaborative research and collaborative research that's sponsored by the EU and the USA, we get an idea of how long that should be. Now, collaborative research is fantastic. It's a, it's a method in which uh, we can, as, as an industrial researcher, work with other industrial researchers and other organizations and even work with academic partners. And we can share IP and the rights and the visions that we're coming up with and we can work together to solve a common problem. And governments like those in the EU and the US create a framework, a legal framework, which facilitates that collaboration. And that framework really importantly takes care of all that intellectual property and the, the rights management and how it works. And it solves those problems. And it also, at times, provides us with funding to let us do what we need to do. And that's great. It's really important. But that framework also gives us a time frame. And if you look at what the European Union does, they say it's roughly a three year period. And they can break that three year period up into stages, which are roughly, you know, understanding the problem, developing and evaluating possible solutions. And then the last phase is usually creating a working prototype. So if we take our three year period and then we add on our technology latency, a technology transfer latency, which is roughly two years, we come up with about five years. So we've got to look five years into the future. But we're not done yet. Whenever you apply for one of these research frameworks, you've got to have a good idea of what you're going to build. And that takes time, maybe a year. So really, we're looking at five years, six years, possibly seven at an outlier. Trying to look six, six years into the future. That's a good idea. That's a, that's a good, good estimate of what we need to do. So now we've got an idea of how far into the future we need to look. The next question is really, how do we do it? And there are a number of different approaches that can be used. But basically, they fall down into two paths, two methodologies. One category, one methodology is really focused around looking at wide breadths or looking at mega trends, big trends that are sweeping the globe that we can see coming. We can watch these trends as they build and as they fall off into the past. Those trends are things like, well, we can see one today with privacy and the push with Europe and the GDPR and the backlash against Facebook and those questions that arise around election rigging and how elections work and in the advertising industry and how come everybody has so much of my information. That's a mega trend and we, it's a pretty obvious one to spot, but we can spot others just as they're starting to grow and we can see them rise. And the other sets of methods, the set methodology, look more at in-depth research, understanding a core need and working out what goes on. 
combining those two is possible. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do in this future prediction series. And the best way to think about it is to imagine this mental picture. And I need you just to pause for a second and try and picture the scene. Imagine you're standing on a beach and we can see the waves coming in towards us. And as they hit the shore, they ricochet off rocks and they create these tide pools. Those big waves, they're usually caused by the wind and these are the megatrends as they come in towards us. And as we stand in our organisation, looking at our specific product area, we can see these rocks, our products. And as the waves come in and they react and they bounce off the different rocks, we can see them move and shake and shift the sand around us, creating the rock pools. And that's basically what we're going to do in this future prediction mini-series. We're going to look at these big waves and the megatrends and how we can calculate or predict that they're coming. And then we're going to see how we can work out what they do with our product space. You know, I said I was going to tell you about four people. Well, I've only told you about three. I have one more to go. And that guy is Jules Verne. And in 1865, he wrote a book called From the Earth to the Moon. Now, in this book, he depicted a big giant cannon that would fire a projectile all the way from Earth and it would land it on the moon. This, of course, is utterly, completely nonsense. But the location of that cannon and its dimensions and the speed at which the projectile, the spaceship, would need to go, they were all spot on. You see, before Jules Verne wrote the book, he'd done his homework. He had gone and worked out the physics required and he talked to people about it and he'd done his Newtonian calculations, worked out the speed at which a projectile would need to go. He even worked out what material it should be made of. He said aluminium, not iron. And then he worked out the cost of it. How much would it cost to build? And when he did all of this, he then worked backwards. He said, now I know the maths. Let's work, let's work backwards and create a story. Where would I launch it from? And that was a combination of politics and mathematics. He said, hmm, which nation is going to be most likely to fund this? And from that, he got the USA. Then he said, where? I needed somewhere near the equator that could make use of being there for the, the spit Earth's spin and also the thickness of the atmosphere, which were important parts of this calculation. And he picked Florida. In fact, a lot of what Jules Verne predicted in his book was so close to what actually happened with the Apollo launches that there's a website dedicated to it. If you check out the show notes associated with this show, you'll find links to all of this. I really love sci-fi. And what this really shows is the best science fiction are the ones that are based on that core scientific knowledge. And Fitzroy did it really well. He said, the result of a scientific combination and calculation. I think that's right. And when you look at what Jules Verne had actually done, he'd taken this core scientific need 
this core imperative of those Newtonian calculations and then worked backwards to this story. We've covered an awful lot and we've come to the end of this episode. Now, I had planned on a much longer episode that was going to go into all the theory and the methods as well, but I'm going to have to save those for the next one. In the meantime, I've got some homework for you. Can you think about your industry and your company? Can you identify any core motivations that direct and drive the work that you do? If you can, let me know. You can find me on Twitter as at MCWoods. I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you'd like this episode, please like it or subscribe it. It's now available on just about every podcast host I could find. So you should be able to find it on Apple and Spotify and who knows where else. So take care and stay safe, especially with this virus going around. And I look forward to talking to you again next time. The music used is an excerpt from Bust This, Bust That by Professor Cleek and is used under Creative Commons.